open up your Bibles to the book of John, and we continue in our Christmas service. You may say, well, we did that last week, but we've been keen on emphasizing that we celebrate Christmas daily here. This is something that we recognize because, especially through the Gospel of John, we've understood this concept that Christ has come and in the form of a man, in the form of a servant, to live among his people. And this God is the, and this Christ is the word, which is God, as we remember and we recall from the very first word that we read in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. This is what we've been kind of putting forward and understanding, and, and now we, we come to this juncture in, in history where the God-man is living amongst his people, where the God-man has chose to live amongst people like you and me, where the God-man chooses to live amongst sinners. If we want to put it frank, if we want to put it bluntly, we can say God chose to live with sinners like you and me. Now that's impressive. Now that's a, that's a, that's a big statement and a big factual statement because God in all his essence, in all his natural essence, we've been singing it these past couple of minutes, holy, you are holy. And if you take an evaluation of your own life and you can say, am I holy, holy? We recall the words of the prophet Isaiah who continuously says, holy, holy, holy is God. He recognizes his inferiority before God. So that says something. How does a holy God decide to live among people like you and me, especially in a context where people rejected him in the time of John? It's no different from our time. It's no different from what we've been living in. God is constantly being rejected even now in day. But let's read this wonderful fact, even though you may have had it memorized already. These few words are very important. You look with me in verse 14, kind of where we've been for the past couple of weeks, verse 14 of the first chapter, the Word of God says this, and the Word became flesh, and what did it do? Dwelt among us, and we've stopped right there halfway through that sentence. It has dwelt among us, it has lived among us, and is dwelling among us as we, as we spoke about last week. So the Christmas story is this very fact. God comes down in the form of a servant, in the form of a man, in the form of a baby, and grows up to save us. He's living amongst us to show us what it is to be a human being and how it is to serve God and love others. We've kind of expressed that and explained that a bit in the past, but this true reality of him living with us has to really set in in order for us to respond correctly. This is a response. The gospel is always demanding a response, not only a verbal response, but a life response. If God dwells among us, what does he expect from us who dwell with him? Is God only living among us to show us his glory? Is he only living amongst us to show us how powerful and mighty he is? Is God only living amongst us to show off his supernatural abilities. What does God expect from us? 
If we are those on the other side, if we are those that are encamping around God, what does the presence of God mean for us? And this is what the incarnation is all about. It demands a response. So the church, in this essence, in its very core, in its very essence, is, is not just coming. You don't just come and, and sing a couple of songs and, and give a dollar or two so that you don't look bad when the offering plate comes around. It's not just what we do here, but how we respond on our daily lives, how you love your wife, how you love your kids, how you act when no one else is watching. It's as simple as that. What do you do when no one else is watching? What do you think about? And the gospel is a call of response to holiness, and it calls us to live amongst a God who is holy. So, in order for us to really understand God's dwelling, we have to understand why this word is here. John uses this, and we, we clarified this a bit last week, but we're going to go into more detail today and possibly next week. God is, I mean, the, the gospel of John is using this very word of dwelling to remind us and to bring our attention back to this tabernacle experience. That's why we read Exodus chapter 19, and we're going to go to Exodus in a bit. But this tabernacle word is, is a verb that, is, that is, is given in the Greek. So in a sense, the, the translation, the like literal translation would be, God came and pitched a tent among us. God came, and if we can say tabernacled among us. It's using a verb to remind us what it means when God built a tabernacle amongst his people in the days of old. So I want to give you a warning uh, right now and, and remind you that even though we are in the Gospel of John, these first 18 verses have led us into a deep theological study on all fronts. We've talked about Christology. We've talked about different doctrines. We've talked about a lot of theology that is packed into these 18 verses, and that's why we spent so much time here. But this is important. And this is another reason why we have to spend time on these verses because they remind us and they put our attention on things from the Old Testament that we have to understand and get right. So I want you to, even though have your, you put a bookmark in, in the Gospel of John, go with me now to the Old Testament. And we're going to skim through the book of Exodus, up until we get to this tabernacle experience. I want you to understand why this tabernacle experience had to exist. I want you to understand what led it there. I want you to understand what God meant by doing the tabernacle amongst his people. Now, if you remember a little bit of last week, at the end of Genesis, we have this 430-year gap between Joseph and the time that, that Moses comes on the scene. The people of Israel are enslaved during the book of Exodus, and we have this very great promise after its liberation. Go with me to chapter 6 of Exodus, and the word of God says in verse 7, I will take you to be my people. And I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So we have a promise from God for the people of Israel that they've been taken out, they've been freed from their slavery, and God is reminding them here, he will be their God and they will be his people. But the big reminder is, I freed you. I 
delivered you. It was me. It was God who did this. Though he used Moses, Moses falls in the background because Moses in the first place was a murderer refugee. He was hiding for his life and God used this man to help usher and mediate this delivery. Moses begins to play the role of the mediator, not a savior. God, time and time again, is the one that says, I saved you. I saved you. I stepped in and I brought you to freedom. This is a promise. This is where God shows his might. But he also shows, if, if you read Exodus, between chapter 7 and chapter 17, we have this awesome, amazing wonder that God does between chapter 7 and 17 of, of showing his miracles and power and his hesed. If you remember what the word hesed means, it's his loving kindness. It's his mercy that God is giving to his people time and time again, showing that God can liberate them at any moment. This is, this is what the people of God, after being enslaved for 430 years, after living in slavery, this is what they're experiencing. They're experiencing the mighty hand of God. God is proving to them that he has freed them and that he can keep them free. God is proving to them time and time and again that Pharaoh or any other army or any other ruler cannot detain the work of God. There is no need, per se, for the people of God to doubt God. There is no need for doubt to exist because their eyes are seeing this. You know, when we, when we look at the Old Testament, when we get into the historical writings and the books, we remember that, or we read that they, these people went back to that time to recall what God had done. In the book of Kings, we, we, we see time and time again that, that, that God is reminding them, hey, remember that I did this. Remember that I did this. Even in the second generation in Deuteronomy, God is calling the kids to, hey, look at what I did for your grandparents. And, and, and he's reminding them to go way back. However, here, this is firsthand experience of God. These people are experiencing it firsthand. This is not a story that is being told. This is the life experience of the people before their God. God has freed me. God has delivered me. God is promising to be my God. And God is showing me time and time again how mighty he is. There is no room for doubt with God's people. Or that would be the best option. No room for doubt. But what the book of Exodus will time and time again tell us and explain to us is that doubt will always creep in. And that these people will not trust their God. Once again, this is God choosing to elect a people like Israel, choosing to be with people like Israel, and Israel failing God every step of the way. So fast forward, go with me to chapter 19 now in Exodus, kind of what we read at the beginning of the service during our scripture reading. Chapter 19 then is, is this anticipation of what God wants to do now. God delivers his people. God shows his might 
God shows his power amongst his people. But now God begins to explain what he wants to do with them. And at, in chapter 19, we get this anticipation of the tabernacle, of the future temple, and of the future Christ. We have this wonderful anticipation because on, on chapter 19, as we read in verses 16 to 25, God wants to meet with his people. So not only do we have a mighty God, not only do we have a, a liberating God, not only do we have a God that has freed his people from slavery and has brought them out and has showed his mighty acts, now we have a God telling the mediating voice, Moses, I want to meet with my people. What did he say in chapter 6? I will be their God, they will be my people. God wants to meet with his people. And on this mountain experience, we get this wonderful uh, in information of God speaking, but the people are nervous and the people are scared. I mean, if you remember what we read in, in verses 16 and on, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. God reveals himself now in his person. So, so get this. Up until now, the people of God have been experiencing God terrorize the enemy. Up until now, the people of God have been experiencing God defeat on their behalf. And they're kind of like in the background, kind of like, yeah, cheering. This is awesome. God, look at what you did with the, with the sea and the walls of water. This is amazing what you're doing with the plagues, how you fed us with manna and the rock, the water from the rock. This is amazing. The quail that, fall from, that fell from the heavens. This is amazing. They're spectators to what God is doing. But now God decides to live among them and they are scared. Before, up until this point, God was their savior only. But now God is requiring a personal experience. So the fact that God wants to be with his people isn't like, oh, how nice of God. Oh, that's cute. Oh, that's great. Thank you. Oh, this, this one, there must be something good in the people of Israel. No, the fact that God wants to deal and live amongst his people requires a response from his people. And we will see this on this mountain, on this mountain experience in verse 10. Look at what it says in verse 10 of, of chapter 19. If we go back a little bit, verse 10 says, The Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments. Before God comes down on the mountain, the people must respond. How? By cleansing, by a washing of garments, they have to wash themselves before they meet their God. This is a response that the people give in order for God to come and deal and dwell among his people. There is, to a certain extent, a prescription that has to be followed. In order for God to meet with his people, God says, first you have to wash yourself. First you have to Cleanse yourself. So we're beginning to see 
a, a, a formula. We're beginning to see God set up a structure on how he will live with his people. So if the question at the beginning is answered, what, how a holy God can live with, a holy, with, with an unholy people, how can God live amongst people like you and me that are sinners and dirty and, and, and full of stain and full of sin all over us? How can God do that? Well, there, he will prescribe a way to do it. If God left it up to our own way of trying to figure it out, we would all fail miserably. Try to live holy on your own for this next couple of weeks. Try to remind yourself what you're going to promise yourself next year in the 2020, and there's going to be a lot of cheesy sayings that are going on around churches, the 2020 vision, and you're going to see clearly now, and the year 2020 is your year because you get to see clearly your past is behind you, and I'll look ahead and stuff like that. And what are you going to tell yourself? And remind yourself of what you're going to try to do next year, and you're going to realize that pretty soon you're going to fall very short. I'm going to read my Bible more. I'm going to, I'm going to read the entire Bible. And come February, you're still in Genesis chapter 5. We need the help of God. We can't do this on our own. And God is prescribing this on Mount Sinai. This is before the tabernacle, friends. This is before God's meeting place. He's already prescribing a way to live amongst himself. Look at verse 12. It keeps going, verse 12, and you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. This is severity. This is God's holiness not being messed with. Many of us think that because God desires to live with us that we can live however we want with God and we can do whatever we want with God because God loves us. God is our, our spiritual Barney. He will love us no matter what. This isn't what God intends to do when he lives amongst his people. He doesn't want you to just feel loved. He didn't want Israel to just feel his love. He wanted Israel to live as a holy nation before the other nations. He wanted Israel to understand that they were distinct, not only because God chose them and God didn't choose the Egyptians and God didn't choose the, the, any, other, any other peoples. God chose them, and in, and in choosing them, they had to live distinctly. That's why Peter reminds us that we are a holy nation taking after what God has done with Israel. So there's boundaries that are set up. Verse 17, then Moses brought the people out to the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. They did not touch it because they were warned. They were there anticipating and prepared to meet God. And this meeting, it has smoke. That represents the presence of God. Thunder and lightning represent his voice. So when God spoke, it was frightening. The mountain shook at the voice of God. And in this meeting time, the people understood what it meant to live with God. And that's why they were scared. That's why they trembled. But then God does something incredible. The famous chapter, if you go to the next chapter, chapter 20, 
Go to 18. Look at how the people are. Look at the posture of the people in chapter 20. Verse 18. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were what? Afraid and trembled. They stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. People understood what it was to be in the presence of a holy God. They knew it wasn't game playing anymore. They understood the reverence it took to be before God. So much so that they were afraid. And they asked Moses to speak on their behalf. But what happens in chapter 20? In chapter 20, we have this wonderful delivery of what we've come to know as the Ten Commandments. Moses gets these two stone tablets, and God gives Moses instructions for his people. This is how my people are to live in order for me to abide with them. They are handwritten instructions by God, and they are given to Moses so that they are given to the people. Moses here mediates the voice and the instructions of God and gives it to his people, or he is supposed to give it to his people because this is the way the people are to live. And so in the Ten Commandments, it's a very brief introduction on how to live before God and how to live with people. So the Ten Commandments is a summary of all the, the 600 plus laws that we will get in the Old Testament. It's a summary, and the summary is basic. You love God, and you love people. How you live with people. That's why the, the second half of the commandments is, is thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not cover your neighbor's wife. All of these are how you live with other people. The first couple, the first four are how you live towards God. Simple. Ten Commandments are a prescription on how an unholy people will live before a holy God. God desires to be with his people. How unfair would it have been of God it said, for him to say, figure it out? God doesn't say, figure it out. God says, here are my instructions. Read my instructions. Do my instructions in order for you to live before me. Now, all of this, as I mentioned earlier, is an in anticipation of a future tabernacle, of a future temple, and of a future Christ. You have to have that in the back of your mind. God, in his grace, shows his people how to live. Because God is life, and the people need to know how to live a good life. God shows his people how to live a good life. Life. So it isn't that the people are putting their lifestyle on hold. It isn't that the people are, are, are sacrificing so much. God is not only prescribing them how to live before him, but God is giving them instructions on basically how to live. If you do this, God, God will continuously say in the Pentateuch, if you do this, you shall live. If you do this and obey my commandments and you follow my instructions, you shall live. This is life. This is the good life for the people of God once they follow his instructions. So, 
after 430 years of enslavement and of brutal conditions, now they are freed from God and they are given instructions on how to live. Can you imagine what's going on in the people of Israel? All they knew for the past 430 years was how to live in slavery. How to live being oppressed by the Egyptians. But now they are learning to live under a new monarch. Now they are learning to live under a new head of state. And this is their God. In this state, they are free. They are delivered. And though they are wandering, they are being supervised and they are given a promise of a life that God is desiring to give them in the land of Canaan, the land that flows with milk and honey. Now, although we can't develop that theme anymore in this session, but this is their whole anticipation. So go with me to chapter 23 of Exodus. Look at what happens in chapter 23. Verse 1, you shall not spread a false report. Sorry, chapter 23, verse 20. Sorry, that was my fault. 20, behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place I have prepared. So there is this anticipation. There is a place that has been prepared, and God is sending an angel to guide them there. Verse 21, pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. What does he say? Obey what? His voice. What are they to do? Obey his voice. On the way to the land that has been prepared to them, they must obey his voice. Pretty simple. Do not rebel against him. Second half of the verse. For he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. So once again, a prepared land, an angel that will guide them there, and in this guidance, he will give them instruction. And in this instruction, God tells his people, do not disobey. And then he says, do not rebel. The tendency of all humanity is rebellion and disobedience. If you look at our kids, you'll understand that. But this is God leading his people to a safe place by giving them an angel. Now read with me verse 20. 22, but if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. Verse 23, when my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I bolt them out. So God is guiding them towards this land and if they obey, God will work on their behalf. Do they have anything up until this point to doubt God on? What has God done at this moment? He has destroyed Israel's enemies. Their primary enemy, Egypt. 
If you read chapter 18 and 19, you'll see another enemy that God blots out immediately. The people have no way to doubt God. God has proven himself more than enough with his people. And so when he says this, it's understandable for the people to say, yeah, you know what, you're right. I will obey because, because we have every right to do so. There is no reason for us to doubt. Because if they do doubt, what will happen? He, they will be abandoned. So here's the, the gospel. Even in, the, in Exodus, follow my commandments. You disobey, I will abandon you. And I will give you up. We see the gospel in this because if you understand what this angel represents, he is the one that has the name of Yahweh. Look back at verse 22. Sorry, verse 21. Pay careful attention to him. Obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgressions. For my name is in him. He has the name of Yahweh. And in that same verse, he has the power to forgive sins. This angel of the Lord is an anticipation of the pre-incarnate Christ. This is the Son of God with his people. Now you'll say, man, I thought the Son of God came into the story on, in, in the book of Matthew and in the book of Luke and in this Christmas thing in the New Testament. Well, the Son of God, what, did, what does John chapter 1, verse 1 and 2 say? He was from the beginning. He was with his people, with God from the beginning. And here he is guiding his people and instructing them to live according to his rule. And what's interesting is that in chapter 32 of Exodus, the people abandoned the rules. But we'll get there soon. So what's going on here up until this point? I'm giving you a lot of historical reference of the book of Exodus because I want you to understand what it implies. Early on, God leads by his voice, leads by his power, leads by his mercy and his grace. He gives instructions. He, he speaks to Moses in chapter 19 and chapter 20. He gives instructions to his people or he's anticipating instructions to be given to his people while Moses is on top of the mountain receiving from the Lord. God is desiring to live with his people and his desire when he lives with his people is that he will speak to his people. So this entire time we have this notion of God speaking with his people. This is how God's presence abides with his people. This is how God lives with his people. He speaks to them. It's interesting, this phrase, and the Lord said to Moses, is repeated 92 times in the Pentateuch. Well, actually, from Exodus all the way to Deuteronomy. 92 times it's God and the Lord said to Moses, and the Lord said to Moses, and the Lord said to Moses, constantly reminding and affirming that God guides his people and lives with his people by his voice. Don't believe me? Go to chapter 24. Chapter 24, we'll start on verse 4. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and the 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. Look at verse 7. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it 
in the hearing of the people and said, all that the Lord has what? All that the Lord has spoken, what? We will do. And we will be what? Obedient. God lives with his people by guiding them with their voice. And the response of his people will always be submission and obedience to it. It's simple. If Israel doesn't want God to be amongst them, if Israel doesn't want to be guided by God, all they have to do is disobey. All they have to do is look at the Ten Commandments and be like, that's for you, bro. I'm good. I don't need that. All Israel has to do is ignore the voice of God. But Moses writes this down. He writes, he reads the book of the covenant. What's the book of the covenant in chapter 24, verse 7? What, what, what is this book? The book of the covenant, it consisted not only of the Ten Commandments, but it also included instructions on how to worship, the rules and the principles of community life, and instructions for entering the land of Canaan. This book of the covenant, we'll, we'll see later on in the Pentateuch, this is what it consists of. God promises then to give them tablets of stone. Look at verse 12 of chapter 24. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the, and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. These are the instructions on how to live with God. When God decides to live amongst his people... He gives them instruction on how to do so. This is Israel being guided by God's word day in and day out. Once again, in anticipation of the tabernacle, in anticipation of the temple, in anticipation of Christ and his church, the way God leads and abides and dwells with his people is by speaking to them. But now God wants to inhabit his people in Exodus. Go with me to chapter 25. 25 verse 8. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Verse 9, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. God desires now to dwell. Mount Sinai was a precursor to this very moment. God was on that mountain, showing himself powerful on that mountain. But now, remember, the people could not go up to that mountain. Remember that. There was boundaries for the people. If they were to touch those boundaries, they were should surely die. Now God says, I want to live, hear, hear the words carefully, dwell in their midst, in the middle of 
his people, not at some far off distance, not at a remote location. For all the people that work from home, you love that, right? You love being remote and have to deal with those people. God was saying, no, no, I want to be in there. I want to be, I want them to be around me, in their midst. And the way he was going to do this, the how he was going to do this, is answered in verse 9 when he says, according to the pattern of the what? Of the what? Of the tabernacle. So up until this point, this is the first time we see this word come to be. This is the word that John chapter 1 verse 14 emphasizes. God will skeneo, God will mishkan, God will make a tabernacle with his people. And the word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us, in the midst of us. This word mishkan is the word for tabernacle, and that's the word that John uses to describe how God lived amongst his people. Up until now, we don't have a tabernacle or a concept of a tabernacle. All we have is God guiding his people with his voice and with his instructions and showing them how to live. Here, God dwells within his people. It's interesting, but the LXX, the, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, to put it simple, they use this word in the Greek called aura, which is a perception. So when they translate in the midst, they translate God as being perceived. God wants to be in the midst in order for himself to be perceived by his people, not at a distance. This is always the truth with God. It, it, it's only infiltrated in the late 19th century, going on to the 20th century, that we do have a God that has created us, but he's far off. And some of us don't even pray anymore because we think God doesn't hear. Because God is busy doing too many other things, listening to too many other good people. God showed us from the very beginning how he desire to live amongst a rebellious people and give his presence in them in order for him to be seen. And this is exactly what it means for God to live amongst his people. The tabernacle will be, will be the description on how God abides with his people. In the tabernacle, although we can't go into too much detail, but in the tabernacle, we also find this Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is located in the most important place of the tabernacle. Now, I didn't want to go too old school and have charts up here with the drawing of the tabernacle and all, the, and all of that stuff, but, but it's important to understand the sections, and we'll get into that a little bit more next week, but in one of the sections, the most important section of this camp, of this tabernacle, is this place called the Holy of Holies. And in this place of the Holy of Holies, we have the Ark of the Covenant. And within the Ark of the Covenant is what we've come to understand is where the presence of God abided. Look at, look at chapter 25, verse 16. 
Here's something important. This, from verses 10 and on, it's the description of the Ark of the Covenant. And in verse 16, look at what the Ark of the Covenant contains. And you shall put into the Ark the testimony that I shall give you. What is this testimony? His word, his commandments, his instructions. So in the middle of the tabernacle, in the most important place, what is in that place? What is in that ark? God's instructions for his people. Again, friends, I, I can't, I hope you're getting this, but I can't stress this enough. God is guiding and living amongst his people by his voice and by the written instruction. In that ark, we have this testimony of God. Check, check chapter 20, verse 25, verse 22. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in the commandment for the people of Israel. Where will he meet with, with, with the priest? Where will he meet? In the Ark of the Covenant. Where is the Ark of the Covenant? In the holy place. What is in the Ark of the Covenant? The testimony. What is on the Ark of the Covenant? The mercy seat. Who is sitting on the mercy seat? The presence of God. And there, he says, is where I will speak to you and give you commandments. For who? For his people. On the mercy seat. We're going to discuss that a little bit more in detail next week. But, but at this moment, friends, the reason why we've, we're going through Exodus is to understand why God in the New Testament decides to live amongst his people and how we are to live before him. So to finish off today, go with me to Matthew. Remember what I've been saying? This Mount Sinai experience in chapter 19, I urge you, I urge you to read the book of Exodus if you can, today. 40 chapters, you can knock it off. Put Netflix on pause and knock it off before the new year. Make that a pre-New Year's resolution. Read the book of Exodus. But if you read 19 again and 20, all of this is an in, in anticipation of what? The tabernacle, of the future temple, and of the future Christ. So look at what Christ says in one of his most famous sermons, chapter 7. The last couple of verses, chapter 7, verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell and great 
was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Jesus lives amongst us, teaching us, guiding us with his word. And, and friends, what we have before us here is God's word. This was always supposed to be in the middle of his people. This, my friends, should be in the middle of your heart. This should be what you live by every day of your life. It's pretty simple. If you want nothing to do with God, put his word away. Ignore it. You could even, you could continue coming to church and still not abide by his word. And God has departed from you. We'll read that next week. But I want to stress this. Ever since that mountain experience, even before that, God was guiding his people and the word said to Moses and the Lord said to Moses time and time again, God desires to lead you and me by his word. And it's for us to listen and for us to obey. 